Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the 20th chapter of Acts, beginning in verse 13 and reading to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's Word. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and, and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came, uh, uh, came opposite uh, Chios. Uh, the following day, we arrived at uh, Samos and stayed at Tregillium. Uh, the next day, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church, and when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to, be to, to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day, with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm not going to take time to review uh, where we've been, of course, except that to know that Jesus sent out his disciples in the very beginning of the book of Acts, to go to all the world. Uh, to start in Jerusalem and to fan out and to uh, 
uh, take the gospel as far as the ends of the earth are. And that's what Paul is doing, and that's what we've seen through the book of Acts. And here we are, beginning in verse 13 of this chapter. In this next section of Acts, Luke tells us that Paul decided to sail past Ephesus straight and go straight to Miletus since he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. Verse 6 tells us that they had been in Philippi for Passover, so roughly two weeks of this 50-day period has already lapsed, and so that means he only has about 30 days to go to get to Jerusalem. Paul had already bidden farewell to the church at Ephesus, and I suspect he knew that if he went back to Ephesus, he would get bogged down in any number of issues uh, because he, he cared for that church, he knew them well, and uh, so I think he knew that that would, that would delay him beyond what he wanted. And so instead he sends and he t- asks all the elders from, the, from Ephesus to come and to meet him in Miletus. This was about a 30-mile uh, Miletus was about 30 miles north of Ephesus as the crow flies. However, the actual road was much longer and winding, uh, which was really about a three-day round trip. So it's at this gathering of the church elders, which was a sort of presbytery meeting, that Paul will give our only recorded speech in Acts, which is given to a Christian audience. His other talks were evangelistic sermons to both Jewish and Gentile audiences or legal defenses that he made before the Sanhedrin in the early days of the church or later five speeches before Jewish and Roman authorities which are recorded at the end of the book of Acts. This address to the Ephesian elders is going to touch on some themes that we will see in the rest of Paul's letters to the churches He's going to talk about the grace of God in verses 24 and 32, the kingdom of God, verse 25, the purpose of God, verse 27, the redeeming blood of Christ, verse 28, repentance and faith, 21, the church of God and its edification, verses 28 and 32, the inevitability of suffering, 23 and 24, the danger of false teachers, 29 and 30, the need for vigilance, 28 and 31, and our final inheritance in verse 32. All of these are covered in this long section that we looked at today, and I'm not going to take the time to expound on all that. We're trying to keep our pace up as we move through uh, the journey of Acts. But these are the core things that the elders and the churches are going to need to have firmly established in their minds. And remember, Paul's already been in, in Ephesus teaching the churches for three years. And they didn't just meet for an hour on Sunday, as we learned in in one occasion where they went till midnight. The next morning, Paul had long meetings. I'm sure they met more often than once a week. He's meeting in homes. He's meeting privately, small groups, big groups. Uh, Paul is busy anytime he's not doing physical labor to support himself and those with him. In fact, Paul says in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. They've gotten an entire uh, seminary course uh, here in this three-year period. He's given them everything. And the word that is translated as counsel could also be translated as a plan, which indicates that uh, this whole counsel or this whole, I've I've declared to you the whole plan of God, uh, indicates a settled intention of purpose that was carried out 
step by step. So Paul realizes, though, that now uh, it's time for him to pass the baton to this group of leaders, these elders and pastors who've gathered. As we read in Acts 14:23, and we know this from example in, in Titus, Paul would appoint elders in every church. As he told Timothy, who interestingly later becomes the pastor of the church at Ephesus, uh, he says this to Timothy later, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So that's what Paul is doing as he gathers these elders together at Miletus to address them. And so we can look at what Paul had to say, I think, by dividing it into three sections related to the past, to the future, and the present. In verses 18 through 21, we see his ministry to the Ephesians. Uh, In verse 18, you know what manner I always lived among you. So Paul, again, had been with them about three years, so they had more than adequate time to get to know him, to hear him teach, to hear him preach, to see how he lived. No doubt he ate with them. He had all kinds of circumstances to interact with them. So they had seen Paul. They had seen him labor. They had seen him suffer. They had seen him serve. And so there could be no doubt regarding his sincerity uh, and his commitment both to the gospel and to them. Verses 19 through 21 says, Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly and and from house to house, testifying to Jews, also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is not, in this case, promoting himself. That's something he never did. He always promoted Christ. As he said in Acts 20, 24, Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That was his focus. It wasn't about him. Uh, And so he understood that he didn't count his life dear. That was not what mattered to him. Neither was this what the Bible calls false humility. I think this is important to understand this issue of humility. What's real humility and what's false humility? And I just this is a little bit of an excursion here, but I wanted to address it because you might ask, why is Paul telling all these things about himself, what he's done? Uh, in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, you'll recall the senior devil screw tape is instructing the junior devil wor- wor- uh, Wormwood in the art of temptation, and we find this interesting dialogue on how to develop in people false humility. And so Screwtape tells Wormwood, I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient, now this would be the the person that he's tempting, has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact that he's humble? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially, especially true of humility. If you must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility, excuse me, you must therefore conceal the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, 
but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. Some talents, I gather, he really has. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt they are less valuable than he believes, but that is not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for some quality other than the truth. Thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe that they are ugly and clever men trying to believe that they are fools. The enemy, that is God, uh, remember God's the enemy of the devil here, the enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would uh, would be if it had been done by someone else. The enemy, that is God, wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. So you see the difference. So Paul is not offering false humility, kind of, oh, shucks, for me, uh, little old me, or is he trying to call attention to himself? He's stating the facts. What he's saying is, these are things that you know because this is what you've seen. I'm not just telling a story here. You've actually witnessed all these things since I've been with you. So in this circumstance, it was completely appropriate for Paul, as a leader, as apostle, to remind these elders of his example. In fact, he actually went into some detail to remind them that he wasn't asking them to do anything uh, that, he hadn't, that they hadn't seen him do. I remember making one of those wise comments when I was about 20-something to a boss, uh, a cliche, never ask anybody to do something you're not willing to do yourself. And he corrected me immediately. He said, no, never ask anyone to do something they haven't seen you do. That's a much better standard. And that's what Paul is doing here. And so, in fact, he really, uh, he's going to, he's done this before them. First, he had been thorough in his teaching. He had taught them about God's grace and kingdom, verses 24 and 25, and the necessity of repentance and faith, verse 21. He had not shrunk from declaring to them whatever was profitable to them, verse 20, and indeed the whole plan of salvation, verse 27. Second, He had been thorough in his coverage. He was concerned to reach the whole population of Ephesus as he was to teach the whole purpose of God. He wanted to teach everybody everything. You know what Jesus called for in the Great Commission? Teaching the nations all things that I've commanded you. And therefore, he had a ministry to both Jews and Gentiles, both to residents and to visitors. And third... He was thorough in his methods. He taught both publicly in the synagogue. Remember, he was in a lecture hall that he had rented. He taught privately in homes. 
He continued both day and night, verses 20 and 31. He, in other words, Paul was, imagine, I told you last week in these three missionary journeys, he traveled about 10,000 miles, mostly by foot, on foot. So he had to be tired. Uh, but what do we see is he is devoted, he is energetic. He taught the whole gospel to the whole city with his whole strength. His pastoral example to the Ephesian pastors and elders then was impressive. Charles Spurgeon would say many years later, I received some years ago orders from my master to stand at the foot of the cross until he comes He has not yet come, but I mean to stand here until he does. Paul had given and given and given. Second, that was his past. Now we take a look at his future sufferings in verses 22 through 27. He shifts from what the elders know about him, and now he's going to tell them what he knows. The Spirit had revealed to Paul what was ahead of him. Verses 22 through 27, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. He didn't know the particular things, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, or dissuade me, or keep me from going. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's a man on a mission. He understands there will be obstacles and problems and issues. But nothing is going to deter Paul from his mission to take the gospel to the whole world. And it's clear that he perceives his mission will take him far away and that he's never going to return to see the Ephesians. He planned to go to Rome, and I suspect that he had intentions that once he got to Rome, that was going to be his hub of operation. Rome is the center of the world. It's the crossroad of the world. And he already had on on his radar, if you will, Spain. So he, he, he realized, if I'm going to travel that far, given my age, given the circumstances, given the scope, given how much work there is to be done, I've spent three years here. This is established. I'm going to leave it with you. And so he tells them in verse 25, And indeed, now I know that all, all you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. He knows this. And this must have really driven home the finality of this meeting with the elders. Things were about to be put into their hands. As he leaves them, he does so, though, with a clear conscience. Therefore, he says, verse 26 and 27, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And Paul, being the scholar that he is, I think, no doubt, had in mind a passage like Ezekiel 33, where it says, And again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land... And the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. That's Paul, right? When he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, 
If the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. But the watchman, again, this is Paul, sees the sword coming and uh, the watch, no, I'm sorry, that was Paul. This is a watchman who sees the sword coming and doesn't blow the horn, blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any person from among them. He is taken away in his own iniquity, but the blood I will require of the watchman's hand. Paul said, I am innocent uh, of, of anyone's blood. I have proclaimed the gospel. And then third, now we turn to his exhortation to the elders, which is the present. So we've looked at his past, we've thought about where he's headed, and now verses 28 through 35. Uh, now in the light of the past and the future, he gives the elders a present charge. Verse 28 summarizes his central exhortation to the elders. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And in verse 32, he tells them to keep watch. They must first watch out for themselves, as he would later remind Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And this is not just any flock. We're told in this text, this is the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. The Greek word for own is used as a term of endearment, of close relations. In other words, elders, you have been given charge of a flock that Jesus loves dearly. Richard Baxter, a famous Puritan minister, reminds pastors and elders to watch over all the flock, and he mentions several kinds of people within the congregation that we watch over. There are, young, there are the young and the weak who, though they are of long standing, he says, are yet of small proficiency and strength. They content themselves with low degrees of grace, and it is no easy matter to get them higher, to help them grow up and mature. So you're dealing with young people. There are those, number two, who labor under a particular state of corruption, which keeps under keeps under their graces and makes them a trouble to others and a burden to themselves. Some are especially addicted to pride and others to worldly-mindedness. They're always wanting something else. Some to sensual desires and others to forwardness and other evil passions. So we have sinful people among us that we have to watch out and care for. And then there are, third, the backsliders, declining Christians that are either fallen into some scandalous sin or else have abated in their zeal and diligence and show that they have lost their former love. Those who need encouragement, exhortation. And then there, he says, are the strong. You need, they need you also, elders, for they also have need of our assistance, partly to preserve the grace that they have, partly to help them in making further progress and partly to direct them in improving their strength for the service of Christ and the assistance of their brethren and also to encourage them to persevere that they may receive their crown. Pastors and elders must know their flocks and their particular needs. And then he quotes Jesus in verse 35. 
it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, was that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? None of them. It's not recorded in any of those. But here's what I'd say to that. We are reminded of what John does say at the end of his gospel in chapter 21, verse 25, where he says this. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And remember, Jesus had instructed Paul directly. He'd spent many time with his disciples. So obviously Jesus had said that. Now, uh, to wrap this up, uh, Paul gives these elders another warning, said, after I leave you, here's what's going to happen. How did he know this? Well, it's because it's what's been happening. He's seen it happen. He knows human nature. He knows how this works. And so he says in verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Elders, shepherds. In the ancient Near East, wolves were the primary predators of sheep, which were defenseless. And so shepherds could not afford to be lax in their diligence and vigilance, and nor can Christian pastors and elders. And so Jesus had warned, remember in Matthew 5, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Or as Peter warns in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, he's speaking to elders here, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so the shepherds of Christ's flock have a double duty. They have to feed the sheep, nourish them, make them strong, teach them. And they have to protect them from wolves by warning of errors. As Paul put it to Titus, he says in Titus 1.9, Elders must... Hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And so again, I suspect Paul now, instead of Ezekiel 33, as we just read, has Ezekiel 34 in mind, which says in verses 5 and 6, So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. And so we can look ahead and see that all of Paul's counsel, in fact, was not heeded on this day, at least some years in the future, because you remember we read when we get to the book of Revelation and Jesus is speaking to the seven churches When he spoke to the church at Ephesus, he commends them for a number of things, but he says this, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So one other thing I want to make this point, and I'm speaking mainly to the elders who are here among us, but you sheep can listen in. A personal word from me. Shepherding a church is full of many joys. It is full of many satisfactions. Thank you very much. But at times, it can be too much. As Paul said in verse 31, For three years I did not cease 
to warn everyone night and day with tears. Like a parent who has moments of fatigue and even despair, we can be tempted to grow weary in well-doing. In the tyranny of the urgent, we can lose sight of what's important. Paul helps these pastors and elders get a right perspective on what they're doing and what is at stake. And boy, I don't know how much of this sermon is helpful to you today, but I can tell you this is the sermon I needed this week and for many weeks, really, for my whole life. But uh, Paul says to these elders and these pastors, to begin with, the church is God's church. It's not yours. Just like your children are God's children first. And over this church, which belongs to God and has been bought by Christ's blood, the Holy Spirit appoints overseers. This Trinitarian affirmation that the pastoral oversight of the church belongs to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should have a profound effect on pastors and elders. This is the flock of God the Father, that purchased by the precious blood of God the Son and supervised by overseers appointed by the Holy Spirit. If, these, if the three persons of the Trinity are so committed to the welfare of these people, should we not be also? Again, Puritan Richard Baxter wrote, Oh, then, let us hear these arguments of Christ whenever we feel ourselves grow dull and careless. Did I, Jesus speaking, did I die for them and will you not look after them? Were they worth my blood and are they not worth your labor? Did I come down from heaven to earth to seek and to save that which was lost and will you not go to the next door or street or village to seek them? How small is your labor and condescension compared to mine? I debased myself to this, but it is your honor to be so employed. I have done and suffered so much for their salvation, and I was willing to make you a co-worker with me, and will you refuse that small amount that lays upon your hands? Paul then offers the elders these words of assurance and comfort. You can imagine these elders are pretty scared. (laughs) Paul's been here holding their hand for three years. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all those who are set apart. God is the ultimate builder of his church, and he will accomplish this through his word. Moreover, There is this promised inheritance to faithful servants. Peter gives a similar exhortation to elders in 1 Peter 5. He says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He says this to these shepherds, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And then finally, he reminds them that they are already among the sanctified. That's a, in the Greek, that's a present reality. You are sanctified. You are holy. And then now it is time for Paul to say goodbye. Verse 36 to 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words he spoke that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. So this was a very emotional moment. Like a parent sending their young adult children off, Paul was handing over the work to these men. He had trained his replacements. And these men now had to let go of their mentor. Let's pray. Father, we are eternally grateful that Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Father, again, we are forever thankful. Amen. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, saying, Him, referring to Jesus, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And so you are the work of pastors and elders. And we are leading and feeding and protecting you as sheep for a reason. As Pastor William still captured, I think he captures this well when he said this, Israel's sheep were reared, fed, tended, retrieved. Healed and restored. Why? For sacrifice on the altar to God. The end of all pastoral work must never be forgotten that its ultimate aim is to lead God's people to offer themselves up to Him in total devotion of worship and service. We're fattening you up. For sacrifice. God loves the fatted calf.
The pastor and elders are not the church with lay spectators. Neither have the church members hired ordained leaders. While they differ in function, they are nonetheless related, and each of us, in our own special way, are participating in the mediatorial work of Christ. So while at one level we are all prophets, priests, and kings, at another level we have a variety of ministries that we're called to, and yet we are all called to serve Jesus Christ. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said it well, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come die. Hebrews 13, 20-21, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father and Savior, keep us as the apple of your eye. Hide us under the shadow of your wings. Keep our souls and deliver us. And let us not be ashamed, for we, must put our tr- for we put our trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve us, for we wait for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your sheep eternal life and for the promise that we shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch us out of your hand. Bless now this Lord's Day, and may we sanctify it unto you, setting aside our own labors and concerns. May we delight in you and in one another. Bless our food and our conversation, and may they both be used for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen.